Welcome, everybody, to What Do You Believe? This is our 301 class on presuppositional apologetics. I'm your friendly neighborhood pastor and professor, Joseph Y. Rostick, and I'm glad that everybody is here today. You are in our 301 class, which is like an ongoing discipleship class for our elders and deacons. And uh, I'm going to ask that Christopher Pittman would please open us up in prayer. Go ahead, my brother. Absolutely. Uh, amen. Uh, Lord, we just thank you, God, this opportunity, uh, being able to have class, uh, really talk about you, talk about what you've done, uh, talk about just uh, who you are, God. And I pray just for powerful revelation God, on uh, on who you are, you know what I mean? Just more power, powerful revelation uh, in your gospel that can even transform us even now, even though we are at deaconship, you know, and doing those things. Uh, we pray to be filled with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that the Spirit speaks powerfully uh, to us through all of this time. And uh, we just love you. We, we are here to know you, here to love you, and just here to have uh, just this fellowship and understanding. Um, and I pray all this uh, honestly in your mighty name. Uh, and thank you for all that you already done. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Amen. Thank you, my brother. Well, I am excited to be talking to you guys today about this lesson. This is chapter six in our book on apologetics. We are using Dr. Frame books, uh, Dr. Frame's book. And one of the things that we uh, have been learning is that in the last chapter, especially, is that as presuppositional apologists, we can use evidence. So evidence is not something that we necessarily have to be afraid of. It's just we use it from a presuppositional approach. We never give up the knowledge of the scripture. We never meet the unbeliever on neutral ground. And one of our biggest podcasts right now is the debate I did with the Muslim last week. And then the debate review actually has more views than the debate itself. And I really showed how his methodology was flawed. And all I had to do was just keep using the standard of the scripture and pointing it back to him and showing that he did not have solid ground to stand on. And we do the same thing with all the other evidence that we have, because all truth is God's truth. Now, today, we're going to go into what's probably the greatest proof of the Christian worldview, and that is the gospel. So I'm going to ask that, um, let's have Yuli read Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17 for us, please, as we get started on the gospel as proof. Amen. Yes. <clears throat> for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel of righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Thank you, my brother. And we see this is clear. This is Paul's teaching. Now, does anybody notice anything particular about this passage as it relates to presuppositional apologetics? Does anybody notice anything? Something very interesting about this passage. You don't have to answer it, but I want you to look at it and I'll give you the answer. Guess what verse 18 is? The following verse. The marching orders of the presuppositionalists. So when we go to verse uh, 118 of Romans, now we get 
right after it said in 17 about the gospel. Now, verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So now you can see that the gospel is the means of salvation, and the reason why people don't accept it is because they have wickedness and they're suppressing the truth. So when you and I are preaching to them the gospel and they reject it, we then have to tear down their presuppositions. Isn't that awesome? It all ties together now. We are a gospel-centered apologetic approach. Our apologetics will never come without the gospel. Now, if I was writing this book, and maybe if I teach this class again, I'll maybe arrange these lessons a little differently, because I certainly would have started with this at the beginning. The reason why we're presuppositional is because we're gospel-centered, and we believe the only thing that can save is the gospel. It's not evidence in the sense of like having an argument with them over, you know, evolution versus creation. None of those things are going to save a person. Remember, we talked about this last week when I gave the illustration of the cheating spouse. After they've been exposed, they've been caught, everything's been brought before them. That still doesn't guarantee they're going to repent and stay with their wife. They may say, fine, you've caught me. And then I don't want to stay with you anyways. And so you can have all the evidence in the world, but unless they change their presupposition, which we believe they can, that the human will is free. The human will has the choice to believe or reject the gospel. Just as Jesus said, those who hear these words of mine, put them into practice, they're the righteous builder. The ones who hear these words of mine and don't put them into practice, they're the foolish builder. Jesus also said there's two paths, one leading to destruction that many travel on. That's a, that's a wide road. The other one is narrow. Jesus went around talking like this all the time, reminiscent of the Old Testament uh, uh, ultimatums. You know, jo Joshua, serve, I choose you this day who you're going to serve. Moses, there are blessings and there are curses. Throughout the prophets, you know, return to me, God said, and I will return to you. So now that we go to our last proof, I actually would like to say this should be our first proof. So when I go witnessing, I'm leading in with the gospel. Like I said, if I was writing this book, I would have put this at the beginning. Right there at the beginning, when we're understanding presuppositions, I would have started verses 16 and then taught you verse 18 in that context. So for that sake and for, uh, for that reason and for other reasons, I'm not going to rely much upon the book right now because this gets now into my expertise let the book be a supplement to what we discuss here. But really, this is where my strength is, is gospel preaching and defending the gospel. But that is how we lead in. So uh, just to give you an idea of how this would look, we're out street witnessing, which is what we do in our church. And we're on our corner, on a corner out in the park somewhere. And you talk, you, you meet a stranger and you're talking to them. Hey, you got a chance to talk about Jesus. Okay. My first thing that I ask them is, have you been born again? And if they say, well, I don't know what that is. At that moment, now I preach the gospel to them. I am not ashamed of the gospel. So I know when I start preaching that gospel behind those words, the Spirit brings the power of salvation. And all they have to do is believe. The Lord won't force, force them to believe, but we believe in something called prevenient grace, 
which means that they will have the opportunity to choose to believe or not. And prevenient grace means that they're, that the Lord allows them not to be bound to their will to where they can cannot make a choice. We believe that they can make a choice because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome, the, overcome it. And that is in John chapter 1. So we start to talk about the gospel. Now, most people I meet don't argue about the gospel. So I don't even need an apologetic at that point. I just keep preaching the gospel. Maybe uh, they're a nominal Christian that doesn't go to church anymore. So we'll talk to them about being a backslider, show them the sin of Galatians and say, if you're doing these things, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Maybe they come from the Roman Catholic Church, never were actually a Christian, but uh, they have a Christian basis of belief. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in the Bible, etc. So I'll start talking to them about the need to be born again, not having a mediator between them and God except Jesus Christ, receiving forgiveness and justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But let's say I meet somebody now that is an unbeliever, and yet they don't want to believe. They are resisting. They are in verses 18 of chapter 1 and onward. They're suppressing it. I'm now going to dis discern by the help of the Holy Spirit, you know, but this is the wisdom I believe God has given me already to discern where are their problem areas. And then I'm going to start attacking those presuppositions. So most of the time on the streets, you're not really meeting informed atheists. Maybe you're meeting a teenager, a little rebellious, doesn't want to serve God because they think Christianity is lame. So at this point, I'm going to say, do you believe in Jesus as a person? Do you think he actually walked the earth? And if they go, yeah, he probably existed, then I'm going to say, then why does everybody believe in this man as a religious figure? Why are there are so many world religions that believe he's a religious figure. Why do even people who aren't religious look at him as a religious figure, like historians? Uh, we can show them in the history of Rome, they believe Jesus was a religious figure. And he's going to have to give, or she's going to have to give an answer to why Jesus is so equated with a religion called Christianity. And he may say, well, he was a good person. And I'm going to say, no, there was a lot of good people. What made Jesus unique is that he claimed he was the son of God. He said he came to die for our sins. So that means he came from heaven. He was pre-existing. If you read the gospels, it's always like Jesus is saying, I have come, I have come, I have come. So where's he's come from? He's come from heaven, right? And then I'll begin to share with them that he dies on the cross and raises from the dead. Now, if they come against the resurrection, then I'm going to start bringing up evidence for the resurrection. If they start now doubting the uh, attestation of the New Testament, I'm going to start defending the New Testament. Okay, so I'm going to take those various roads. And most of the time, you shut down people on the streets quite quickly if you can just know some of these basic arguments. Now, let's say you meet somebody from another religion like a Muslim. The Muslim is going to start having partial truth mixed in with a lot of air. You have to start figuring out their errors if you have never studied Islam and then you're not quick to know it. That's why I wrote a book, Helping Muslims See Christ and Christianity. It's free online PDF or pick it up at the church or soft a soft cover through the website, mpichurch.org. And then you can start to go right at them quickly. You know, like the, uh, the Quran says they did not crucify him. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it appeared to be so. And you can say all historians say that's not true. It, it, it's as sure of a fact that he lived is that he was crucified and killed under Pontius Pilate. Atheists believe that. Even people like Bart Ehrman, et cetera, extreme 
skeptics, people even like on the History Channel around Easter time, believe he died on the cross, right? So then we're going to find wherever that religion is differing with the Bible, standing on our presupposition, and we're going to keep the gospel at the forefront as a sharp sword tearing down those arguments and then believing God that he will do what we can't do, and that's convict them. And then if they're willing to subdue or, or humble themselves, submit to the conviction, they then can believe and be saved. So that's the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. Uh, that's the preaching of the gospel, I should say. And that's the power that comes with it. And it's from that place that we do apologetics. So I hope you guys understand that's really important to what we're doing. I mean, you can't be saved without the gospel. We should lead in with the gospel. People contradict the gospel. We tear down their presuppositions and their arguments. Now, let's get a good understanding of the gospel. I got seven main points here. I kind of stretched it out. The gospel is summarized by Paul and other, and other apostolic writers as basically the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Those kind of three points are very important. You also see that imitated in baptism. We just baptized 23 folks Sunday. So this is a great illustration to see the death, burial, and resurrection is the baptism. But this is now a little bit deeper of an explanation. So I want to give you seven points. Let me go through them quickly, and then we'll read the scriptures. Number one, the words pre the words preexistence as God. Number two, the Son of God's virgin birth and incarnation. Number three, Jesus's sinless life. Number four, Jesus's substitutionary death on the cross. Number five, Jesus's burial and work in Hades. Number six, Jesus's resurrection. And then number seven, Jesus's ascension and promised second coming. I want you to notice that I differentiate Jesus from uh, the word or the son of God here in these first couple of points. That's intentional because a lot of people don't understand that the word and the son of God are the same person existing in eternity, but they did not have the name Jesus nor did Jesus did the Word or the Son of God have flesh until he was manifested by the Virgin Mary and took on flesh. So let me just say this again. The Son of God is the eternal Logos. They're the same person. Okay, so we're not talking about multiple persons here. Uh, just his title in pre-incarnate state before he was in incarnated, not incarcerated, incarnated, came in the flesh. Carne asada, the flesh, you know, carne, flesh. Um, before he came into the flesh, he is the word. He is the son. Jesus, in that sense, did not exist until the word 100% God took on 100% flesh. That God-man, the Word, in union with flesh is Jesus, okay? It's not a big deal. It's okay. I do it a lot. The Scriptures do it a lot. Put Jesus back into heavenly places before his incarnation, and you'll see a Scripture like Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But when you want to be technical with the gospel writers, especially with John, who really gives us that picture, it's the word becoming flesh, or in another sense, the word becoming Jesus. So Jesus is the God-man. Now you may say, why is that important to know? Because when I was debating with the Muslim, he kept getting confused about this point, saying that if Jesus was always God, 
Why is God giving him authority and power? Like in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. If he was God, he would have always have had it. But that's because he didn't understand the incarnation. The God-man, man needed the authority that Adam had lost. So the Son of God became man, the God-man, and in that humiliation, that humble state, he became Jesus, the God-man lived and died sinless as a man. Now, there wasn't two consciences in him. This is what we believe. There was one person we know as Jesus in him, the word in Jesus, and as he had an earth suit on, et cetera, he dies and all of these things. And then now as a man in the line of David, the son of David, as he was prophesied, is exalted above every name that is given. So this is, see, the, the word always had equal status with the father. That's what Philippians 2 talks about, that he was always equal to the father. But man never had a place in the Godhead. Humanity had no place in the Trinity, okay? And we had lost that through Adam, so we needed to be brought back in. And that's why when you look at scriptures, especially like in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says there's only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So this is his role as a priest, and he came as a priest, a, a sacrifice, and a king. A priest, and you could also say prophet, prophet, priest, king, sacrifice, you know. But the, the three main roles as, 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 as a man was to be a priest, was to be a sacrifice, was to be a prophet, and then he's exalted to a king. And that's why even when they were arguing with him, he said, how is it that David says, David says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And what that means is, and then he says to them, he goes, how is the Messiah, the son of David, the Messiah comes after David, yet David calls him his Lord. David says, I worship him as I do Yahweh. And then they said, we have no idea. So they were stumped by the revelation of the incarnation. So think of God's triune nature concealed in the Old Testament, and then it's revealed in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. So the son of David was the earthly flesh that Jesus got from Mary and from the lineage of David, and the word incarnated came into that body and unified himself to man and forever now identifies as the God-man. And that brings us to another error that we want to correct, and that Jehovah Witnesses don't believe he resurrected as a man. He resurrected only as a spirit, but we believe he is now still the God-man, and is forever the God-man, and that is how we will rule and reign with him, by having his same flesh in his image, okay? So the words pre-existence as God, that was a little uh, what we would call Christology. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the first part of understanding the gospel is that the word has always existed. He wasn't born when he took on flesh and became Jesus, when he became man. The Son of God's virgin birth and incarnation, Matthew 1, 20 through 23, talks about how Jesus came into the flesh. Uh, this is the word that was given to Joseph. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. Does everybody see that you're going to give him, you're going to give the eternal Son of God in the flesh the name Jesus 
because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet in Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And let me just make sure that's Isaiah 7.14, because I was just uh, going through some of these scriptures. I see that I froze here for a second, so please be patient with me. Okay, I'm back on here. Okay. Isaiah 7.14. Yeah, okay, that was Isaiah 7.14. Okay, Jesus' sinless life. As a man, he lived a sinless life. John 8.46, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? So Jesus put himself out there. Can anybody convict me of sin? And they couldn't. These are the historical records of Jesus, and nobody could. It's not like they just washed these away. There's a lot of the sins that are talked about in the Bible. David sinning. Uh, you know, a lot of people sending Moses, not even be able to go into the promised land. But Jesus, no sin. No one even writes it, even in history. Nobody talks about Jesus sinning. Number four, Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Now, this goes back to what we were talking about, the, the word, the son becoming flesh. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And this is a great point here about the atonement. Was the atonement only to satisfy the wrath of God? First and foremost, yes, but it was also Christus victor. As we know, Christ the victor in Latin, he also was victorious over the devil and his authority on the cross. So it was twofold, mainly for the wrath of God's sake and all of these sins being imputed to him. But it had a secondary and secondary uh, um, results. And one of those secondary results was that this defeated the devil. Okay. John, uh, point number five, Jesus' burial and work in Hades. And if you notice here, we say Hades and not hell. It's good to distinguish between the, the Greek word Hades and Gehenna. Gehenna is what we would say is hell, the place of torment for the damned. It's the place that's also related to the lake of fire. Hades is related to the Hebrew word of Sheol, which is the place of the dead, also known as uh, paradise, or excuse me, also known as uh, uh, two places, the tormenting place of hell and uh, Abraham's bosom, also known as paradise. So the grave, Sheol, was broken into two places. This is where the departed saints went. Some have been there since Noah's flood. Some angels from the fall had been here as well, locked up as prisoners, the Bible says, and uh, I believe it's in uh, Peter and, and, um, and Jude as well. And so what we see is that Jesus goes to this place, preaches to them, the, fall, the fallen ones, I mean the, the sinful ones, what you rejected in part now is here in full. You are eternally condemned. And then those that were in Abraham's bosom, like the parable of Lazarus and the beggar, uh, beggar, the beggar and Lazarus. Uh, well, let me see the beggar and Lazarus. Somebody help me out. Am I saying it right with the beggar and Lazarus, the rich man? Rich man and the beggar. I don't think Lazarus had anything to do with it. And um, Lazarus or the poor man. Yeah, so La the beggar is Lazarus. Thank you. It just stuck in my head weird because I was thinking of the Lazarus who got raised from the dead. Okay, the Lazarus was the beggar. The rich man was the guy that wouldn't give him anything. The rich man goes to hell. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. There's a great chasm that separates between the two of them. 
while Jesus was in the grave, he preaches to the ones that are in hell and what they re, uh, had rejected in part. He now tells them they're being punished now for that. Those who had uh, accepted it and partial through the law are now being given full blessing by being brought to heaven. So we don't believe at, at this point they were literally in the presence of God. They were in a middle place. OK, and Ephesians 4, 7 through 10 says this. And this is maybe where some of you have not understood what's going on here, but this is what's happening. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to the people. So he's bringing the captives with him, those who were in Abraham's bosom, those who had not yet been born again, because we don't believe the born again nature could be given until his death. And what does he ascended mean? Except he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He also he who also excuse me he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So he goes down and then he goes up. He goes to this place called Sheol, preaches judgment to those who have rejected the law and Moses and the prophets, and then brings the born again nature to those who were captive there, not able to come yet into the presence of God, and he delivers them into to the brings them to the Father. Now they weren't in torment in Hades; they were they were in a place that was known as paradise, but this is now the fullness that they were waiting for. Uh, number six, the resurrection, Acts one three. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. He did this for, for at least 500, for at least uh, the 40 days to at least 500 witnesses. And then his ascension and promise, second coming, Acts 1, 9 through 11. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And once again, this shows us uh, the problem that we have with anybody claiming to be a Christ, you know, in our generation or in the times past. If anybody says they are Christ, they're already a liar because no one will have to tell us they are Jesus in his second coming. Everyone will see that. Would, those, they, everyone will see the one in which was pierced, the Bible says in Revelation. They will, let, they, will, they will put their eyes upon him. They will see him. He will circle the globe like a fast shooting star, and everybody will know who he is. So anybody who says, I am Jesus, Jesus even warned against this and said, come out here and find me. Come, come over here. He said, don't listen to them. They're lying to you. Okay, I know I said a lot there about the gospel. I brought a lot of extra land yet there. As you can see, those of you who are just joining us, I'm not taking a lot from the book. Use that for your own resource and study. Like I said, this is more into my expertise. I wanted to go into a lot of different places that the book didn't. But the bottom line is we are on chapter six, week seven here in the class on the gospel is proof. Gave you guys some good nuggies out of Romans 1, 16 through 17. Showed you how that tied into Romans 1, 18, the precept scripture, the model for us that everyone has some kind of truth and they suppress it in wickedness. And then I went over understanding the gospel, showing you the difference between the word and the son of God, as opposed to just Jesus as the God, not just, but Jesus as the God man, helping you understand he was pre-incarnate and then born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, substitutionary death, his burial, his work in Hades, his resurrection and his ascension and promised second coming. Those are kind of like the real, like in-depth points of the gospel. So I'll take a few moments here to maybe take a question or two of uh, any of the information you just heard.
so the reason why Adam was giving the authority back, Adam was the only one who could lose the fall happened because Adam, when Eve ate the apple, for example, when Eve ate the apple, she did not initiate the fall. Only Adam could number five, do that. Neil? That's why yes. I stayed in, yeah. That's why I stayed in first. Five? May Eve ate the apple. Hey, we're going to have to mute you until you get your sound taken care of there in the background, okay? So uh, I think I heard the question before we had to mute you. And that is, the, was it Adam as opposed to Eve? Yes, it was not. The, the fall was not initiated until it was Adam. And that's why we needed a second Adam. Correct. Okay. If, if you can come back on without background noise, that would be good one. If not, if I answered your question, that's okay. We can yeah, move on. Okay. Thank you. Anybody else? Question? Let's not do comments right now, but any questions? Questions? Uh, is the the difference between Haiti and uh, what was the other word you used? Gihenna. 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 G. G. It's a Gihenna? Yep. Okay. Um, so is that where many Catholics get the idea of purgatory? I know no, I not even close. Not even related. Okay. Purgatory comes from some of the Gospels, uh, the, the parables found in the Gospels, where Jesus says um, to the person, who wouldn't forgive, uh, well, rather the, the, the manager says to the one who wouldn't forgive, the one with the lesser debt, uh, throw him into prison with the tormentors and do not let him out until he's paid everything in full to the penny. They uh, ex extrapolate from those kind of passages that there will be a place where you will pay back everything you did against God. But obviously, that's just Jesus showing that in their day and age, this would be the worst possible outcome. And he's giving them the example of that's what happened to the man who won't forgive. But then in other places, it's clear. You don't forgive. You're not forgiven. There, there is no uh, place of, of uh, you know, in, 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 inter, um, an intermediator, inter, intermediating place. Any, any other questions on that, Joby? Yes. Uh, so um, we're trying to. Let me give you one last one because I want to keep going. And make sure you guys, when you're asking questions, you have them wrote, writ, written out or really clear so that the whole class can uh, get uh, some uh, uh, something out of them. Because I've been listening to some of our questions and we're still, you're coming on the mic and not really formulating the questions. Right, Joby, you're doing good. But I just want to make sure we keep that flow today. Go ahead, ask your next question, and then we'll move on. Thank you. Yeah, um, I thought, cause I, just correct me if I was wrong, if I'm wrong is I thought Paul was trying to reach the Greeks, so he used, like, terminology that they would understand uh, because it was written towards Gentiles. That's what I thought. Is that wrong completely, or is that some truth? When he, so when he uses Hades and he uses Sheol, like, I thought he was trying to reach the Gentile. In that, in that no, the Hades is the Gentile word for the Jewish concept of Sheol, and it's not Paul. This is the Gospels. This is Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus. when let me just finish, please. Jesus uh, uses this term because he knew they would understand it. So basically, the pagans, like the Jews, believed in one place in the underworld, one location, uh, one uh, place. I don't want to say location uh, because there's two locations there, but one uh, underworld, one uh, spiritual place where souls would go. And there it was divided up between what people, the good and the bad, where people would go if they were good, where they would go if they were bad. 
And so Jesus expounds on this and shows them that, yes, this is also a part of the Jewish faith. And he tells that parable and he shows them that one is a place of torment. One is a place of paradise known as Abraham's bosom. And then from there, the gospel writers begin to understand that like Paul in this context, he doesn't mention the word Hades. It just says he descended. Um, what it's what it's saying here is that uh, when he descends, he's going to that underworld. And while he's there, he's he's in that lower earthly region. He's delivering the people out of there. So it's like um, Jesus does one better than your gods. So there may be some correlation here, but he's really getting this from Jesus. And the idea is Jesus doesn't just leave us in an underworld where we can still see those who are being tormented, you know, past this great chasm. Jesus actually goes there, gets the keys of death, hell, and the grave, and delivers us from it and brings the souls into the very presence of God, this place where maybe in other pagan religions, they wouldn't have believed like men could actually be, but now we are there. And then as you study through uh, Paul's uh, writings more, not only that, but we come back with our God and then get a new body and rule and reign with him. Does that help clarify some of your uh, understanding of that, Joby? Yes. Okay, good. Thank you guys. Sorry I had to be a little short there, but I just wanted to stop and see if there was any pressing questions because I know I did cover a lot of maybe uh, inf new information for some. All right, now let's go to our five main arguments for the gospel in our remaining half hour here. So we want to defend the gospel and use it as proof. So the argument's going to say the gospel is true, you need to believe it. We're going to have our evidences, and then if they say, no, I don't believe it, we're going to use the tag and other presuppositional uh, rebuttals. If they, don't, if they don't accept our proofs. So remember, when we show somebody evidence, which there's nothing wrong with doing that, even if you start off with that. Remember, going back to my witnessing analogy today, you're preaching the gospel, you're saying Jesus is Lord, and maybe somebody's doubting a little bit. You say, yeah, you know, all these historians say he lived, and the Bible says he resurrected. That's totally okay. The only place we need to start rocking their presuppositions is when they don't accept our proof. So they go, well, I don't believe your proof. That, that doesn't make any sense. Now we go, how do you make sense of anything? How do you even know you're here? That humbles the, the, uh, the non-believer. As the Bible says, answer the fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes. We're showing them that to, uh, you know, it's one thing to be a seeker and to ask general uh, questions, you know, like, oh, okay, I didn't know that, but what about this? What about that? You know, and they're learning. It's another thing to be like, no, this did not happen. And it's like, now you're suppressing the truth and wickedness. We're going to start tearing down your uh, presuppositions. Most of these um, I use probably fluidly, just like one after another. Uh, when Yuli has been witnessing with me, I'm sure he can remember these coming up once again, and I want to clarify because I think I lost some of you guys two weeks ago on this. I am not going in my witnessing or preaching premise one and premise two and therefore the conclusion. I'm just saying these things while I'm preaching, and if they reject it, then I say, well, then you, you got to come up with a better solution here because it doesn't make sense to just reject it. You can't just say, I don't believe that, you know, because the, these are logical. The, these are reasonable. These are things that are following a mindset of someone that would discover any kind of truth, uh, truth in science, truth in biology, et cetera. 
Let me give you the fame, five main arguments, and then we'll go through them individually. Argument from fulfilled prophecy. Argument from the New Testament's witness. Argument from Paul's conversion. Argument from the Christian faith. And lastly, argument from changed lives. These are the five main arguments that I like to give for the gospel. Let's start with the argument from fulfilled prophecy. Jesus fulfilled so much prophecy that would be impossible for anyone else to do without being the Son of God. Premise one, God gave specific prophecies in the Bible that pertain to Messiah, God's Son. Number two, Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. Conclusion, therefore, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Some of you have heard this before. You can look this up in a ton of different books, ton of different videos online. I just gave you guys a helpful chart here of um, the 353 main prophecies. And if you want to write these three, one, three down, I came up with three simple ones for Chris before the class started. He was asking me, what are some just some of the best ones that I can show people on the street? Well, the best one that I like to do is Isaiah 53. A great way to do this is to have somebody read it. Say, uh, would you just read this for me? Have them read, you know, a good chunk of it. And then say, who do you think that's talking about? And they'll say, that's talking about Jesus. And say, uh, yeah, when do you think this was written? Before or after Jesus? Uh, before or after Jesus lived? And they'll probably say like, yeah, after Jesus lived. Say, this was written 600 years before Jesus. Mic drop. Jewish people get converted by this passage of scripture all the time. They read it and they think it's a New Testament scripture. It rocks them. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. The other one, Psalm 22, verse 16. You could just have them read the psalm, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They've done this to me. They've done this. And then 22, 16, they pierce my hands and my feet. Um, they're gambling for my clothes. Uh, I've been left out here to die all by myself. You could ask them the same question. Who do you think this is about? Well, it's about Jesus, before or after Jesus. After. No, it's before. This is David prophesying. Some of the uh, objections that come to our prophecies is that these are drawing the target around an arrow already shot. So imagine the arrow's already shot at the tree. Now you move the target, put the bullseye there and say, oh, there, it hit the target. But it's only because you move the target. So people will say the gospel writers, they just wanted Jesus to be the Messiah. So they kept saying, he did this, he did that, he did this. Well, you see that this stuff fails very, very quickly. Uh, first of all, no one could have predicted how he was going to die. Uh, you can't fake that. He died by the method of crucifixion, okay? It says in uh, Psalm 22 that none of his bones would be broken. You cannot predict that. That, that would be, you know, you're going to die Probably a bone's going to be broken if you die as a young person, something in battle, you know. But yet, this is this is not uh, a Jesus. This is not a man dying in battle. And, and then and then it says he dies alone, so it's not in battle. It could be a broken bone. So like, you, let me back up and say this. If you were to die and you're alone, as the Bible says, you would probably say, well, then I'm dying like by an accident. But he doesn't die by an accident, but yet it says he's alone, so there's no broken bones, and yet it says that he's pierced. How does this work, right? So this is this is almost nothing else could really fulfill this other than the cross at that time or something similar to it. Then the things that uh, he does for the people, he heals, and it says he will be called 
um, mighty God. You know, when people would see his miracles, they would fall down and worship him. You can't fake miracles. You can't fake people calling you God. He didn't go around calling himself God. He did the works of God and people worshiped him as God. I mean, some of these things are just impossible to do. And then other ones have to do with him coming in a certain time. Daniel said that the Messiah would come 430 years after the restoration while the second temple was still around. Jesus literally came within that same time period. Daniel's prophecy of Jesus is one of the greatest timelines of Jesus coming. Okay, um, Then you have where he was going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be um, rejected by his people. The prophecies just go on and on and on. I, like I said, I have the chart there. But like, like I said, they're going to try to say, well, the New Testament authors, they just made these things fit to Jesus. And no, you can't make them fit. As a matter of fact, most of the prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling, people didn't know how they would be fulfilled, like the ones I just talked about. He would be rejected, yet he would be a king. He would die, yet there would be no broken bones, but he would be pierced. He would be born at this time, and yet at this time, uh, of history, the people would be oppressed and he would come and he would suffer and die for them. And yet he would rule and reign. You know, there was a lot of these things that they couldn't see their fulfillments. And so if you were going to make a kind of fake Jesus, you probably wouldn't have picked the dying, the suffering and all of this. You would have probably tried to make him out to be a king, a ruler or whatever, just like how you see all these false Christs doing now trying to build the restored Garden of Eden, like this guy in the Philippines, uh, um, Apollo Quiblo, et cetera. But Jesus is filling these random ones, which you know would be random to them, and yet saying these other ones, these great big ones, will be fulfilled at his second coming, and the proof that that's going to happen is his resurrection. So a lot to think about, and one of the people from Moody who did the chances, I think it was just a 30 of these prophecies being fulfilled, would be like if you filled up the United States of America with uh, quarters up to your knees, painted one red, stirred the whole entire pot up and gave you one chance to pick it out. And then that's just one of the 300. So it's literally impossible for someone to have done this without uh, it being Jesus. And you can see that's a great discussion to have with people. You get these uh, videos out on YouTube, you start watching them with them and uh, I had a bunch of videos I could have put underneath here, too. But I said, let me just give you the chart. You can easily look up the videos. But you can see this would be fun to do with somebody that's interested, obviously, in learning. And they start rejecting these, and then you start taking down their presuppositions. Argument two, argument from the New Testament witness. And uh, this is basically the idea that the New Testament record uh, records the miracles and teachings of Jesus as the Son of God, who died and rose again for salvation. So because the New Testament true, which we believe is the Scripture, what it says is true. The New Testament gives a clear description of the gospel. The New Testament is reliable. Therefore, the gospel is true. <laughs> and then I got an in-depth video there on defending the New Testament. We believe in the Chicago inerrancy statement of faith. came from a lot of the good guys here in Chicago. They made it with uh, the people from around the country. You can look it up, the, Ch the Chicago statement of inerrancy. And it basically says that in the original documents is the word of God. There may be variants, but we have the word of God. Despite those variants, we try to do our best with a historical analysis and textual criticism to find which word it would be. But we know that none of those words change the real overall meaning of the doctrines of the Bible. Uh, and they're not necessary to our faith. 
But, you know, we want to know what they are, and we admit that they're there. We're not like the Muslims who burned all of our other copies that had variants and just picked one of our uh, manuscripts and said, this is the one, and that's all that they did. And they still have uh, over 20 different virgin, virgin, versions, virgins, versions. They believe in virgins, too. But uh, And they have all these variants. So you can never get rid of it. Even the Book of Mormon, I believe, has a thousand differences between when it was first done in Joseph Smith's day to the day, and he supposedly copied it word from word from Egyptian hieroglyphics. So it's just nonsense for anybody to say they have something better than the Bible. The Bible is the most accurate work of antiquity. All these stories that people try to have for their books of antiquity, it doesn't work. Our book stands the test of time. And yes, there are variants, but we know the scriptures are reliable. And so then what, you know, what, what are they going to say? No, it's not. No, it's not. And then we're just going to basically say, how do you know what you know? I do believe that you can have great discussions with scholars over the New Testament. Don't get me wrong. Like, I think our guys can talk to their guys. You know, so Bart Ehrman debates Dan Wallace. Dan Wallace is one of our best guys. He actually restores these manuscripts, puts them in digital form. Bart Ehrman was the man that turned an atheist in Bible college and now writes books like Misquoting Jesus. These guys can do it. Don't need to have presuppositional things addressed at that time. It can just be done in what they would call the science of textual criticism. You look at this variant, you look at this text, et cetera. But the bottom line is, is that even Bart Ehrman admits we have what they believed in some form or another. So we uh, could concede for the sake of argument and say, and you'll see, you'll see me do this at the end, uh, and just say, well, even if you were right, we still have the message and, and what it's portraying. But we don't have to do that if we're wanting to really witness and bring that person to the Lord. We can then address their presuppositions. So like I said, it may not always be a, appropriate to do that, because if you're having a New Testament discussion on the, the manuscripts, just you rocking the guy over and over again. How do you know you're not a brain in the vat, uh, a brain in the vat in a jar somewhere? May not really, may not be the best route to go because they're just going to be like, well, you kind, you kind of sound dumb, you know. So we want to have people who understand the evidence. But yes, it does fit in when the guy's now going to say, because of that, I reject the gospel. So if I was doing that kind of debate, like if I was a scholar or if I had a Daniel Wallace in my church, I would say, yeah, do all of that. But in the intro and the closing, rock his worldview, okay? And that's what we'll do in conversation is rock their worldview because we're not textual experts, you know? Our guy will talk to your guy, watch this video, but let's keep going. How do you know what you know? This is the most accurate uh, thing of Jesus' life. Everybody knows that. You're not going to find anything else about Jesus outside of the Bible when people say, well, it's the Bible. We can't trust it. Dude, it's historical record. Just put into a book we call the Bible. Take it out buried in the ground and take one just a scroll of Mark and look at it and pretend it's something profound to you now because it's really an account of Jesus. We just took Mark's account, put it with John's, put it with Luke's, you know what I'm saying? But we don't get to discount them because it's in our Bible. Well, it's religious and they were biased. Everybody's biased and religious. Everybody is. So is the atheist. Just look at the facts and deal with it from there. Uh, number three, argument from Paul's conversion. Paul's testimony proves Christianity to be true. This is another amazing thing to say. Premise one, Paul was converted from Judaism to Christianity by meeting Jesus after his resurrection. Paul's conversions and letters are recorded in God's word. Therefore, Paul was shown the truth of Christianity. Paul converting is probably one of the greatest things that you can point to when you're wanting to show people the validity of Christianity and how it was growing, Paul is a historical figure. Just like 
only a fraction of a fraction, a small group minority say that Jesus didn't exist. Almost like 99.99% of all scholars believe Jesus exists. Same thing with Paul. They know that Paul existed. They know these are his letters. And it serves as a testimony to why did this man convert? Why is he telling this story about this encounter? He is who he says he is. He has this genealogy. It seems that he's exactly in the right place at the right time to be this kind of a Jew. But then he says he changes. And then he says he's persecuted. And he's, you know, and uh, by the best records we have with church history and so forth, there is this guy going around starting churches. Well, he's either deluded, a liar, or he met Jesus. Very similar to the liar, Lord, or liar, lunatic, or Lord trilemma. Of, of C.S. Lewis, and you should learn that if you haven't already. It's like the same thing with Paul, liar, lunatic, or apostle, you know? And then once again, since we believe the scriptures are inspired and it tells us his story, that gives us evidence to know that Paul is who he said he is. Argument number four, argument from the Christian faith. The Christian religion has grown from the early testimony of disciples based on the gospel. Premise one, the disciples said they saw the resurrected Jesus and were willing to die for their belief. People are not willing to die for what they know is a lie. Conclusion, therefore, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, you have to understand the, the point here in premise two, which is the one everybody always attacks. And they say people die for lies all the time. Muslims die for their lies, whatever, you know, communists die for their lies. That's not what this premise is saying. Premise two is saying people are not willing to die for what they know is a lie. That is a rarity in humanity. You rarely ever, very rarely will find people who know they're lying and then are subjected to torture and death and the loss of family and property for what they know is a lie. And we know the disciples weren't lying. They don't recant. There is no hidden story under this. There is no, um, you know, there is, there is no, like, uh, uh, whatever, Jesus gets married, conspiracy theory. I'm trying to think of Dan Brown's book. What is it called? Uh, the Da Vinci Code. There we go. Someone would have cracked. I mean, we can't even keep secrets in any sphere. Religious secrets, these kind of relational, everything gets exposed eventually. And you're talking, these people are dying, man. You don't, you don't think somebody would have said, dude, I'm lying. We, we got his body. We dug, you know, we took it out of the tomb. We put it on, somewhere here in the ground and had somebody dress up like Jesus and walk around and say, I'm resurrected. I mean, at some point, 500 people are going to come clean. Out of that 500 people, somebody's going to come clean and say, man, I am lying. And they're doing just the opposite. They're actually saying we're we're getting more revelation, like John the Apostle, after they tried to kill him and couldn't do it. Uh, they're saying we're having more visions. We're having more dreams. Paul, Peter, you know, on the roof, having a vision of the, the sheet spread across. And now the people that were uh, the, the people that were trying to kill us, like Paul, now he says he saw him. And then this one says he hears from him, you know. And it's like it just keeps spreading, and even to this day, right? That's the next argument here is the argument from changed lives. Lives are continually being changed by the gospel. The gospel, premise one, promise to change people's lives whenever they confess Jesus is Lord. Premise two, those who confess Jesus is Lord are changed, therefore Jesus is Lord. And this is why when you're seeing what God's doing around the world even today, like in this documentary, More Than Dreams, Muslims are actually seeing Jesus. I have the book right here, Eternity in Their Heart. 
eternity in their heart, talking about missionaries showing up to unreached people groups. And when they get there, there is already a witness of the gospel, either by an ancestor, somebody alive at that time, saying something like, somebody was going to come here and show us the Son of God, teach us the way of God. I mean, it's amazing, even just in places today like North Korea, in places where it's illegal to be Christians, where it costs you their lives, these people are literally having encounters with Jesus that are changing their lives. And I just can't find that book, Eternity in Their Hearts. But it continues even to this day. And now they could say, well, this religion changes people, this religion, but not in the way that Christianity does. Christianity changes the lives of people who are actually opposed to it, like with Paul, like with these Muslim testimonies that I'm, I put up there, more than dreams. You can see that people in the midst of the heaviest persecuted areas are turning to Christ. Here's another book that's very similar. Uh, Mosque and Miracles, Revealing Islam in God's Grace. This man tells the stories of, at one time, even entire villages with the imams and everybody seeing the visions all in the same time while they're in their prayer times, and God saves all of them. I mean, this is radical stuff here, and I wish I could find eternity in their hearts, but I guess I will not find it here today. Okay. So that's the fifth argument. Now, before I go on to answering um, the attacks against the historicity of the New Testament, I just want you to think about this. We're preaching the gospel. We're saying the gospel is true. We're sharing it in a way that makes sense. And maybe we're not even waiting for an argument from them. We're just kind of using this as our approach to preaching to them. We're saying, you know, Jesus did this, and Jesus did that, and the prophecies are fulfilled. Or, hey, man, the New Testament's reliable. Do you know? You could say it to them like this. Do you know that they found manuscripts just in the last few years that were on mummies, that the pagans actually used our scriptures as mummifying their dead? And now we take them off the mummy because that's how little respect they had. They tried to destroy our Bible, by the way, in the Roman Empire. And these scriptures match with what we have. You could tell them, do you know that the Dead Sea Scrolls predate Jesus? And they were found in the 50s. And up until this time, the earliest manuscripts we had were around, of the Old Testament, were around 800, 900 AD. And we go back almost a thousand years prior to that, and they match up Daniel, Isaiah. There is no conspiracy here. You show them the evidence. You show them like people like Paul converted right three-fourths of the New Testament, and, and his story is, I met Jesus. There's no reason for Paul to be where he's at unless he met Jesus, and the stories that he tells are relatable to the people's lives that we're seeing changed right now and how the Christian faith grew. So those five things tie together very nicely. Now, when someone specifically wants to attack the New Testament. This is what I do. I show them the argument from Jesus. Jesus himself, according to all accounts, believed himself to be the son of God who came to die for the sins of the world. 
Like I said, I don't have time to get into the liar, lunatic, or Lord argument of C.S. Lewis, but it's very good. It's like, was Jesus a liar, knowing he's telling everybody lies? Is he a lunatic out of his mind? But nobody follows really liars unto death, and no one follows a lunatic, obviously. And neither one of these things can explain any of the prophecies being fulfilled, the miracles and all of that. Even if he was a magician, there are miracles that go beyond what magicians can do. A dead body, Lazarus, who he had nothing to do with, right, gets raised from the dead many days later. Okay? And, and now you're only left with one conclusion. He's Lord. So premise one, the historic Jesus claimed to be the Son of God that came to die and rise for the man, mankind's salvation. Number two, Jesus did die and rise from the dead. Therefore, Jesus was the Son of God, the Savior of all mankind. So you have to put this back on them and say, if you want to get caught up in all of these debates about history and all of these things, I'm going to ask you just to look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. I'm not going to deny the Scripture. I'm not going to say that, you know, the Scripture is not the Word of God. I'm just going to say, look at the life of Jesus first from the gospel presentation and see if you can see him being who he said he is. What other possible explanation could it be? One of the most popular ones that just came out not too long ago was that Jesus was a myth. And this thing gets rocked to kingdom come like zeitgeist and all of this, because he's not a myth like other myths. He doesn't have anything in common with Osiris and all these other gods that that actually is something people made up in the 1800s to try to make Jesus to be a myth because they couldn't deal with the historical facts. And I have a good book there, uh, Reinventing Jesus by Daniel Wallace. And then the other one, which is the video I want us to use today, is the argument for mere Christianity. And where, once again, we don't concede the Bible, but we would just simply say to them, if for your sake, you just want to take what all the major scholars agree upon as the minimal facts of Jesus, let us take that, and I guarantee you, you cannot answer what happened to Jesus other than him dying and rising. So premise one, all major historians agree Jesus lived, died, was believed to have been given resurrection appearances, and they all believe that. Now made the major historians and the scholars all agree, whether they're Christian, atheist, Jewish, it doesn't matter. One Jewish man admits everything and just says Jesus was a prophet that had all these signs and wonders, even was raised from the dead. Because when they do history, they know these accounts, the gospel, like everybody tries to say in, in, in common day, well, that's just the Bible. We don't have to believe it. They know these historians. These are historical records. Whether they have myth in them or not, they're historical records. And since the Bible is written as history, the level of them seeing this stuff as myth goes way down. And so with Jesus, they start to say, well, these guys probably did believe they saw him. They, now they were either hallucinating or uh, someone appeared to be like him playing a trick. But something happened, and these guys literally, they literally believe they saw him. Okay, And then premise two is Jesus rising from the dead is the only rational claim that supports all the agreed upon evidence. And therefore, the conclusion is Jesus raised from the, rose from the dead. And we'll, like I said, we'll watch that video. So you tie it all together. You can reduce that argument down. Uh, Our defending um, Jesus and the gospel to two simple arguments here. Just, you know, let's just look at Jesus and let's just look at the bare facts. But you can really stay a lot on the uh, the five arguments I gave you before. And I think, obviously, they're going to have more 
a scriptural basis behind them. And we're, we're never going to leave scripture, like I said, but those, those ones kind of uh, give, uh, the way I look, I don't want to say give, uh, give them the sake of the argument, like let's pretend the scripture is not true. I don't even like saying that. But here's what I would say with like the minimal argument. These are the things that all the scholars believe upon. Uh, I would say, okay, imagine you are alive before the New Testament is written, you're a shipping guy, you work, you know, at the docks and you meet somebody who's coming from Corinth. And let's say you're at one of these port cities like Ephesus, whatever. And he says to you, have you heard about Jesus? Okay. Now remember, there's no New Testament written yet. He's just going to tell you these kind of like facts here. He's going to say, oh, you haven't heard about Jesus? Well, there was this guy named Jesus that claimed to be the Messiah and he died. And his disciples said that after he was buried, he was raised from the dead, and his tomb is empty. Now, guess what? I met one of these disciples on one of my trips, and this disciple told me that he had actually seen him. And I don't think he was lying. And then he told me he watched him ascend to heaven, and he's coming back. Now, get this. Even his brothers, half-brothers or whatever, said they, they didn't believe him for the whole entire time he's doing what he's doing. But now they actually believe he's the son of God, too, that he was actually born of a virgin. That's what his brother says about him, that he wasn't conceived the natural way. They say if we put our faith in him, that the Jewish God accepts us, and now we are saved, and that he's the one and only God. Okay, That's kind of how I would use the approach of the bare minimal facts if they can't get over the other things. We'll get into that a little bit more while we watch this video. But let's just go over our review questions, and I'll take some of your, your questions. Describe what Scripture references the seven main parts of the gospel. So just in review, uh, we, we kind of look at this as the in-depth version of the gospel, the preexistence of Jesus, his virgin birth, incarnation, sinless life, substitutionary death, his burial, his work in Hades or Sheol, his resurrection, and his, and his ascension and promise, second coming. The next question is, you know, describe these five arguments. Fulfilled prophecy, you know, get a couple of those main ones down. The New Testament's witness, you know, stand on that reliability and say, I can prove it to you if you want to take time to look at the evidence. Many books have been written on this, okay? Paul's conversion, just get him to think about it. What happened to this man named Paul? And if they keep saying he's a myth and just rock their presupposition because he's not a myth. The argument from the Christian faith, showing them how the Christian faith grew, that people who would, would not die for a lie that they willingly knew was a lie, and then change lives. And you can tell your testimony even at that point, you know, God has changed me. And then lastly, how would you defend uh, the historicity of the New Testament if they just try to wipe the whole slate clean? I would say you can't do that with Jesus. We all know Jesus was around. Let's just talk about him for a minute from what we can derive from all history, including the scripture, and tell me your best explanation, because liar, lunatic, myth, none of it works. And then lastly, okay, you can't receive it like that. Here's my last argument for you. Look at the bare minimum facts that atheists, Jewish, Christians, people at Oxford, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, um, all over the world agree upon and see if you can see the truth of Christianity in that. And once again, they don't want to do that. You rock their worldview. And what, when we get ready to watch Gary Habermas's video, he is the most. This is not. This is not even like make believe Christian stuff. But he is the most recognized scholar in the field. He researched. I think ten thousand. I don't know the exact number, but he researched around ten thousand New Testament scholarly articles 
on Jesus and the gospel and came up with what we know as this list. There is nobody that is more of an expert in what the field of New Testament scholarship is. And I have seen him debate people who are in that field and don't believe Jesus raised from the dead. And what they never, in the debates I've seen, never disagree about his minimal facts. So I have not seen these minimal facts knocked down at all. They, they come to the debate going, yeah, we agree. We agree with Gary that New Testament-wise, this is pretty much the best we can get about the life of Jesus. They just, like I said, they'll take the hallucination approach towards his resurrection. They'll take conspiracy approaches. And, and literally, Gary just says, so you're going to believe pretty much the New Testament except for the miraculous. Yeah, because I don't believe in miracles. Okay, well, now he rocks their presupposition. He says, see, that's your problem. The reason why you have to go to hallucinations, you have to go to all these things because you don't believe in miracles. If you believe in miracles, the most simplest explanation would be a miracle happened. And so he shows them, and that's what we will show, is that their presupposition to say miracles can't happen is what keeps them from understanding the evidence, which goes to why we're presuppositionalists. We show them the gospel, they reject it. Now we show them they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and their wickedness. All right. Thank you, guys. What a great lecture today. I felt passionate about this. This was exciting talking about the gospel. I have some time now. We're not in a hurry. So please give me your questions and comments now, and let's have some enjoyable uh, chat time. It's on you guys now. Thank you for your patience. Um, yeah, this was, this was really awesome. Uh, I mean, I think uh, in the first when I when I first gave my life to the Lord, uh, I did come across a a book. I, I think it was either the Case for Christ or something like that, or, or uh, it was it was some book that we had at the guy's dorm. Uh, but man, it, they really they really elaborated on the you know liar you know lunatic or Lord, uh, and the arguments they brought up for it were. I mean, it's just I mean one of the one of the top things that they talked about was how do you take a bunch of men who were reportedly you know disciples of Jesus and like they watched the guy die. And it's really clear that these guys ran off. They all deserted the man. I mean, they were afraid. They, you know, they dipped the second they got a chance. And it's like you, you now, you now see them go from that that perspective, and now they go to this place where they're willing to die in some like crazy ways. I mean, I I don't know, you, you know, I don't know anybody that would that would do that. You know what I mean? And it's and you and you can go through like the historical facts of it. I mean, these are these things really happen. I mean, I've talked to. I've talked to guys who uh, like from India who don't believe in Jesus, but their family way back in generations can tell, will still tell you like uh, they remember when uh, they like, they have stories from their grandparents on where like one of the disciples came to their town or something like that. You're like, what, you know, <laughs> like it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy. You know? So it's just, just seeing like, seeing like how the evidence just kind of, the evidence just kind of keeps like kind of, you know, in a, I want to say snowball in a sense, you know, it builds up so much, you know, uh, and I, I think it's great. Every time I, every time I hear this, man, it's, uh, uh, it's just powerful, you know. We can't hear you, P. Joe. Your audio is off. 
<clears throat> Sorry about that, guys. Yeah, that's amazing, Chris. I love that. Yeah, the case for Christ is a good one. He compiled a lot of it. So just remember, guys, we're not sassy presuppositionalists. We don't only argue the presuppositional tag argument, but we do have a presuppositional approach with all of our arguments. We're always presupposing the word of God, preaching the gospel, and then we're tearing down their presuppositions when they bring arguments. So presuppositions can be used as proof, primarily I mean, the tag argument can, and those kind of arguments can be used as proof primarily with the atheists to help them understand they have to ground everything in the God of the Bible. But when we're dealing with un unbelievers or other religions, we can show them the same kind of evidence that the disciples did when they went out and preached and Paul at Mars Hill, etc. And then if they want to argue that, we can do so um, with them against their, their own presuppositions. Okay, anybody else? Let's keep it going. Um, I have a personal question for you. Yeah. Uh, which one do you think is, uh, which argument do you think is best uh, or that you find yourself using the most? From the one that I probably use the most, and that's a great question, Joby. Uh, the argument that I kind of use the most is the, um, is the one that I put in, you know, I made up the categories in today's notes. These didn't really come from our reading. So the one that answer what I, what I says answers the attack, I actually kind of start with, which is the argument from Jesus. And I think I was sharing this with you guys a few weeks ago. Like, like, do you think Jesus is trustworthy? What kind of man did you think he was? You know, so if he said he was the son of God, you know, do you think that's true? Why would he go around claiming that? I mean, everybody says he's a good guy. That's kind of like the angle I take. And I kind of walk them through like who Jesus is. And then Every time, so I take what I think is like the strongest rebuttal to the strongest points. So I know the biggest thing they can try to attack is who Jesus was in the New Testament. So I start with that biggest canon right there, even if they don't hit there yet. I start there, and then if they start bringing up the, the you know, the quote-unquote, like, you know, bagged responses like, oh, I don't know if I believe the Bible. Then I kind of dance through the other points, but always stay on this one because it's like it's the strongest point to me. It's like it's Jesus. Jesus split time in two. He's the most number one known figure in the entire world. He shouldn't have been that. You know, he wasn't a military leader. He didn't uh, really leave any organization, no government. He didn't even write any of his own words down. He never like uh, he never told people to like do something in the way that would be um, like like a kind of uh, god of the past, like what you know, like like the Egyptian gods, like build pyramids and anything. I mean, he's literally saying, "Love your neighbor as yourself." This and that. So I tell them, like, you're willing to go that. I, I say to them, if you're willing to go that far, then just read the rest of what he's saying. And if they say, "Well, I don't believe Jesus said all that," then I'm like, "What do you have on Jesus then?" So they, so I kind of put them in this, this problem where it's like they want to admit there was a guy named Jesus. He must have been significant. He changed the world. But if he's not, if his records aren't found in the Bible, I put it back on them and say, where are his records? Because this is all we have. And then the Roman historians say he was worshipped as a god. He was revered, you know. And you could also put under here in the Christian faith, the changed lives things, you know, the persecution, I mean, rather uh, the willing to die thing. Not only were they willing to die for a few years, Christians died for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. 
So they kept dying, and they kept saying, just like the Muslims now, they kept saying they're having dreams and visions of him, just like we have. You know, in our church, people who have had dreams and visions, they kept dying and dying. I mean, it gets to the point where it's like yeah. it's silly to say that Jesus wasn't who he said he is. It's really, to me, the only reasonable answer. that this. And then I say to them something like this, and I know I'm long-winded, but I'll say something to them like, if God would have become a man, what other things could he have possibly have done? I mean, this is the God who walks on water, calms the storms, raises the dead, heals the sick, takes away our sin, loves everyone, you know, identifies with the downcast, you know, forgives the adulterer, does all of these things, and then becomes the most popular man in all of history. Like, what more could he have done? There's nothing more you could have done to convince you more. Let's put it that way. They say, well, you'd be on a, if you would have been on video camera, you would have thought that was a lie. It's like whatever we have now is the best evidence you could ever have if you're willing to see it. If not, there's nothing that's going to work for you. Does that help, uh, Joe B? Yeah, have a quote. Yeah, that was good. Go ahead, uh, Juan, and then we'll watch our video. Go ahead. No, uh, definitely uh, no more background noise, but – your comment, one of your uh, arguments that what people do not die for what they knowingly know is a lie. And that's so awesome because, you know, logical, be like, will you die for a lie? Most people will say no. They got to be really, really messed up mentally in order to die for a lie. So, so that argument is very powerful because it's not the Muslim who, who heard it hearsay but the person who eyewitnesses they witness and you know most historians would try to destroy that being like they were just made up creatures made up people paul came stuff like that that's what the historical jesus movement is trying to pose that paul was really the first one advancing jesus and stuff like that but uh that knowing disciples were real historically that's what's proven it's all scholars agree about that and they yeah. only died for Jesus. Yeah, and, and what they used to try to do before archaeology really proved them wrong is they tried to say that our gospels were written in the time where legend would be expected. So if somebody lived at a certain time, then they died, their followers may create some kind of legend about them, etc. And so they kind of thought like this may be happening in time of Christ, but as help uh, happened after the time of Christ. But then as archaeology began to find our manuscripts, we began to find within 30 years of Jesus's life, they're writing down these stories. And so it's not even enough time for legend, yeah. they say, to have been created. And then, as you said, they're dying. So you got guys like why would you, in the Roman Empire – and it wasn't even a military movement. I mean, you could see someone may say, well, let's say like we're oppressed people. And they go, well, let's let's tell our oppressed people we saw a vision. And if and if we in this vision, we were told if we die in war, we'll go to heaven. So maybe somebody might say, let's let's go tell all of our people this to try to motivate them to go rise up against the Romans to go fight and die. Now, that could be very well true for Islam. If he didn't see a demon, he could have just made up stuff and said, let's just go and follow this. But these guys aren't fighting anybody. <laughs> they would be literally making up a lie 
to go right in front of a Roman to say, set me on fire, burn me alive now, because I just made up a lie that says Caesar's not my God anymore. I mean, that is the ludicrousy of it. Put me in the middle of the lion's den with my children. Put me here in the lion's den with my children, because I just made up a lie that just happens to be the very thing I can die for in your empire. Because at that time, Rome was open to all the gods. So they're actually making up a lie that's putting them at odds with their gods. They could have just said, we have a God, you know, like he's this God, he's cool with you, but, you know, he's our God, whatever. But they make up this lie that actually ticks off the entire Roman Empire. And then once again, it's not even these original followers. It's guys like Paul who ends up getting beheaded. It's like, why does this guy switch from being a Jew who's recognized in Rome, has his own uh, customs. Jerusalem is known as its own providence. They get to be left alone, have their sacrifices. This guy lo- lo- uh, leaves them, now becomes persecuted by his own people and by the Romans. And it goes on and on and on. All these conversions happening. All right, let us watch this video by Gary Habermas. The sound is off a little bit for whatever reason. And then we'll end maybe with uh, one more comment from you guys. But I think you'll enjoy this He's going to talk a little bit about his research and what he did. Listeners who may not already know, uh, what is your apologetic methodology and the most affirmative case um, you can offer for the resurrection? Okay, methodologically, the typical way evangelicals go after resurrection is to argue for the reliability of the Gospels. And as reliable books, they say thus and so. Um, I use an approach I call the minimal facts method. And the minimal facts method Um, I developed in my doctoral dissertation at a secular school. And my argument was, how far do we get toward resurrection if we use only the facts that critical scholars, non-Christians, think can be established? How do we get from from death to to resurrection? How do we get from resurrection to Christianity based on their data? So what I do is, instead of assuming the whole New Testament is reliable— I try to build from the ground up, and I picture a brick wall with every brick being an individual fact that we know about Jesus. Mm. One thing that's not very well understood is precisely this. Critics don't mind if you cite the New Testament. See, a lot of people stop you and they say, oh, you're just citing the New Testament. Listen, if you don't, the Bart Ehrmans of the world, the Dom Crossens will cite the New Testament. Well, how do they cite it? They're only going to cite texts that they think can bear the weight of our latest knowledge. So I'm going to use the data which they allow, which they encourage other people to use. I'm going to use just that data, and my thesis is I'm going to use just the facts that have the following two characteristics. Number one, each brick or each fact I use has evidence coming in from different angles, so we have several reasons to believe this brick is true. Secondly, it just happens. This isn't as important, but it just happens that virtually all the critics who are writing also accept this fact. So since it's common ground between us, Mm -hmm. we can discuss it among ourselves. And if the result is resurrection, then I can ask the critic, what do you do with resurrection since your own facts have led you to this? So that's the method I use. I call the minimal facts argument, which Mm -hmm. deals only with data for which there are several arguments each. And would you say that all older apologetic methods still valid? Are there any objections that people raise or misunderstanding that they have regarding your approach? With mine? Well, yeah, here's a common one. Sometimes I'm in a university and somebody will say, well, 
there are contradictions in the Gospels, mm -hmm. or some of the best-known quote-unquote contradictions are in the resurrection accounts. How many women went to the tomb? What were their names? How many angels were at the tomb? And I want to say, okay, two answers to your question. Number one, I think we can answer every one of those questions. But the second thing I want to say is you're, you're missing what my approach is. I only use data on which both of us agree. Mm -hmm. If you're not a Christian and you say, well, I don't think we can know how many women are at the tomb, or I don't think we can know how many angels are at the tomb, I'd say, look it, don't tell me what we don't know, tell me what we do know, because my method is to use common data. Since women and angels are not common data, I'm just not using it. You go, well, but if you're wrong about those facts, it may upset the rest of them. No, it doesn't. It doesn't upset the rest of them. If you accept them, I accept them, we accept them for different reasons. You still have to deal with this. Besides, in a police report, for example, two eyewitnesses can say different things happened, mm -hmm. but no one's going to say that there was no accident. Yeah. I mean, there's the cars right there. Well, there's the phenomenon of Christianity. How do you explain the resurrection? So that's probably a common misunderstanding when people say, what about the, the discrepancies? And there's a side of me, I want to be real careful when I say this so people get the right idea. I do care about the trustworthiness of the New Testament, mm -hmm. but there's a side of me when someone raises discrepancy type objections, I'll, if they go, well, what do we do with the women or the angels? And I'll go, and? Well, that could be a problem for you. And? It disproves the resurrection, doesn't it? No, it no, doesn't, it because you mm -hmm. allow these facts, and I'm only talking about these facts. Yeah. So you're asking about something over here, so you're really kind of getting me off the subject, if, mm -hmm. that, if that works. Okay. You seem to be optimistic about the way the secular world is moving towards the right, and um, uh, especially data concerning the resurrection. And I remember you saying it is truly a favorable and positive era to study resurrection. Let me... Uh, interject right here, put my video back on, because this is almost identical to the presuppositional approach that Sai uses when he was, uh, when Sai uses when I see him debating. And this is where I see that there's more in common with us than there's really differences when you talk about the evidentialists. And this is an evidentialist here, uh, Gary Habermas, as we were talking before about the different approaches. He just goes right in for the evidence. He's not arguing for a generic God like the classical is, you know, showing cosmological arguments and moving there to Christianity. His expertise and a lot of guys like him that are evidentialists are just going to go right to their evidence and say, deal with it. What do you have to say? But as you can see, they are going to, you know, rebut back with scripture. But one of the points that they make as a rebut, which is very similar to what Sai says as a pre-sup, and a lot of times this pre-sup guys say, you shouldn't give the atheist or unbeliever evidence until you rock their worldview. You know? Well, here's the thing. He is assuming that the gospel has the power to save the person. That's why he's giving the evidence. Now, we believe that too. So that's why I like Dr. Frame who says, you shouldn't necessarily be different from a, a classical or an evidentialist, or none of us are really going to be different until we start defending our points. Okay. And I, and, and this is where I think we can see common ground, even with the evidentialist, because he takes the precept in defending his points. And this is exactly what Sai says in his debates. When people start wanting to ask him all these contradictions, this is what he says. When you become a Christian, I'll do a Bible study with you. <laughs> See, isn't that a great way of getting around 
the contradiction issue. It's like, that's not even the issue right now. You don't even believe there's a God, or you don't even believe Jesus raised from the dead. Let's stay on the facts. Let's not get into how many women are there, because that doesn't change the minimal facts of what we know happened in history. And so you want to know how did Cain get a wife? You want to know how the sun stood still? You want to know all of these 101 Bible questions that you think are contradictions? Get saved. Let's do a Bible study. But until then, I'm holding your feet to the fire on this thing. And I thought that was really cool because that is a presuppositional approach. Don't let people control the conversation, get you chasing rabbit trails. Say, just like he said, that's for another time. The way, like I said, I've heard Sai saying it, that's for Christians to do a Bible study. What I'm telling you is not based on that. I do believe the scripture is the word of God, and I could take the next two hours to do it, but I don't want to answer you that way. You see, I don't, that's what the Bible says, don't answer a fool in his folly, lest he thinks he's wise in his own eyes. So you guys remember, there's two kinds of fools. There's the kinds we're answering, and there are kinds that we're not answering. We're not chasing a fool down a rabbit's trail that is not gospel-centered or centered around the facts or what we would say their presuppositions or any of those things. They try to get you off into that. You tell them, that's not my point. We'll talk about that later. Become a Christian. We'll do a Bible study. Okay, let's listen to this just a few more moments, and then I'll get your guys' last comments uh, for the last couple minutes of class. Thank you. Uh, why do you think it is so? Yeah, it's just a, I'll, I'll expand that a, a critique a little bit. This is a good time to be alive mm -hmm. because the most recent data on the historical Jesus in general and resurrection in particular we're uncovering things that are really pro-historical Jesus and are really pro-resurrection. In other words, to use my illustration, our brick wall is getting higher and higher. Yeah. We're getting new data. So it's a good time to be around, and scholars are, are uh, admitting this. For example, Bart Ehrman, best known, probably best-known skeptic in this country. Bart Ehrman says we can get the resurrection data back to within one to two years after the cross. Mm -hmm. Guys, you've got to understand this. This was not always the case. Around the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, all the way up into the 50s and 60s, we were getting bombasted in universities because archaeology had not caught up. And this is the deal. When you're listening to Zeitgeist, when you're hearing these Jesus mythicists talk, when you're hearing people say stupid stuff about Jesus in the Bible, you're actually hearing arguments that are probably 100 years old. And they not only have been refuted by Christians over and over, atheists, unbelievers refute them now. Uh, Bart Ehrman even said at an atheist gathering to a bunch of atheists, you guys need to stop saying Jesus doesn't exist. That makes you look dumb. Jesus is the most attested person in history. You need to stop saying we can't use the New Testament to learn about Jesus. That makes you dumb. We use the records of Rome to learn about Roman people. You know, these were the records of a man named Jesus by his people. So let Gary keep going. But I want you guys to understand that when you're meeting, and I want to say this in all kindness, nincompoops and cottonhead and ninnymoggins on the streets that are saying these kinds of things, they're not only against Christian scholarship, which this guy and people have dedicated their whole life to, they're against the mainstream scholar, scholars of their day, okay? Resurrection data 
back to within one to two years after the cross. Mm -hmm. That's outstanding. The old argument would be, let's start with Mark, let's go to Matthew, let's go to Luke. And they're 40 to 65 years later with John after the cross. But Bart Ehrman says, we can get right back to one to two years after. How? And you use the testimony of Paul. Paul says he went back to Jerusalem about five years after the cross. Paul does the math for us. And he meets with Peter, James, and then he goes back to Jerusalem later. Oh, forgot to tell you guys about that. Not only is Paul's conversion important for the sake of a Jew becoming a Christian in, hostile, in a hostile environment, but he ties together the time period between the time of Jesus to the time of the gospel writers. Most people don't know this, but Paul was writing letters before the gospels were written. And the atheists even agree that his letters are holding the ancient creeds in his letters. Like when he says he was manifested among the flesh, worshiped among angels. These are like in the NIV will kind of knock them out a little uh, in the paragraph, like bring them in a little bit. These are ancient creeds that Paul is doing. So even Bart Ehrman gives the credit to say Paul bridges the gap between the Gospels and Jesus to within a year to two of his actual resurrection. John, so these are the big four, and we get Paul telling us uh, what these guys said about the Gospel, and he said they were all on the same page. So Bart Ehrman, the skeptic, says this is as early, this is as close to eyewitness testimony as we can get in the New Testament. So it's an exciting time to be alive because... Bart Ehrman dates the stuff to a year to two after the cross. James Dunn dates it to just months after the gospel message started. That's how fast they think this is a window into what was right back there at the very beginning. And that just that. Wow. Okay. So I'm sorry I burned up that time for you guys to do it here in our actual uh, class time, but you know, I'll stay after 15 minutes. Why don't I just, if I can, just ask the whole class to stay after and I'll just make sure. We're all on the same page. You guys are awesome. Just looking at how, how everybody is here today. Um, let's have Daryl, please close us out in prayer, sir. Sure. Thank you. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today and tonight, God. Uh, we thank you that we uh, have uh, learned uh, many things uh, about uh, defending our faith, uh, that we are able to uh, uh, have an excision of our mind and install your mind in our in that place, God. I thank you for uh, Pastor Joe and being able to relay uh, such an important message and convey it so in such a way that we can understand it and we can apply it, um, and that we may defend what we believe. Uh, because we do believe our faith, we believe in you, Jesus. We believe um, in in your in the accounts of the your disciples that actually witnessed uh, your death, burial, and resurrection. God, uh, pray that everyone who hears this uh, message and and who hears this class, this three hundred one class, is touched in such a way that they will convert to and believe in Jesus being their Lord and Savior. Uh, in Jesus' mighty name, Amen.